Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 26 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you by strummachine.com. Strum Machine is back as a sponsor, and literally, I use this website every single day. There are so many incredible functions that I can't believe I had only discovered it a few months ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a website where you go to, and you can type in, they have chord charts for fiddle tunes and bluegrass tunes and and all sorts of stuff. And you type in, for instance, I have Dusty Miller in here right now. You can pull up Dusty Miller. It brings up a chord chart of the tune, Dusty Miller. And it's in the key of A on here. It shows you the beats per minute. Right now, it's set at 110. You hit play. It plays through the chord chart for you. And you can set the tempo to whatever you like. So whenever you're hearing some of these amazing players talk about how they start really, really slow, a great feature to this that I've been looking for forever is it has this auto speed up function where you can set it down to say 50 beats per minute and you can have it speed up one beat per minute every time it plays through or five beats per minute. You don't even have to touch anything once you hit play. It's even got an auto finish. So if you want to set times, how many times it wants to go through so you can just sit back, relax and play, you can do it. You can change the keys. It's a piece of cake. And then you can also, my favorite function too on here is that you can put all the songs you're working on uh, in a list, and that's always one of the things I forget that I'd worked on, say, um, Cluck Old Hen a few weeks ago, or or I'm just looking at the list right now, East Tennessee Blues or 8th of January, but now I don't forget because they're all in this handy-dandy list right here. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you get a free extended 30-day trial if you go to strummachine.com forward slash mandolins and beer. So check it out. Thank you, Strum Machine. And thank you to everybody who's listening and who subscribed. And again, last week I had a few more reviews left at the iTunes app. And all those things helped the ratings of the podcast go up. This last episode with CJ Lewandowski was number 16 on the iTunes music chart. And it's all because of you. So thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's amazing. So if you got a few extra seconds and you haven't had a chance to rate it or leave a review, please do so. I also uploaded a new lesson to the uh, Patreon page been adding 10 minute a day ideas there's a whole bunch of different stuff up there from uh, scale exercises and the tabs there and the videos there this last week i did 7th of december by bobby osborne i transcribed it out and have a little breakdown lesson and so if you go to patreon.com slash mandolins and beer you can join that it's eight bucks a month and it puts a little extra beer money in my pocket thank you to the people who signed up last week be sure to follow along to this uh Playlist, Spotify playlist, it's updated with the new Doyle Lawson information. Congratulations to Michael Cleveland on his Grammy win. That's amazing. And one other thing here before we get into the podcast with Doyle, if you go to mandolinsandbeard.com, I will post a link to the YouTube recording. There's a bootleg recording of the Red Slipper Inn when uh, Doyle was playing with J.D. Crow and I believe Red Allen on guitar that we reference in here. And the, the Red Slipper Inn is a legendary place where J.D. Crow played. So be sure to check that out. And uh, without further ado, here's the podcast with Doyle Lawson. Cheers, everybody. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Grammy nominee, seven-time Grammy nominee, and Bluegrass Hall of Fame member Doyle Lawson. Hey, Doyle, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Daniel. I trust you are. I am. I am. I'm now, especially now that you're calling here. This is a great way to start the week talking to a legend. <laughs> well, it feels mutual. We get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, uh, 
Mandolin playing, and yeah. all involved with that. Yeah, that's great, man. So first off, let's talk about you're nominated for your seventh Grammy for your live at Prague or live in Prague CD. Have you uh, have you gone to the the award show before? Uh, I have, uh, I have. Uh, I'm I'm not going to go this year, but uh, I did go to the uh, Nashville chapter, uh, the Grammy party, a week or so ago. They uh, had okay, it in yeah. Nashville because you know not everybody that that is nominated. Uh, sometimes you, it's just impossible to go due to scheduling conflicts and things like that. And uh, but I've I've been. Uh, I think I, I went twice when uh, at Staples Center in LA and uh, and once or maybe twice in New York. Wow, wow, that's great. So, Good for yeah. you, man. Well, it's got to be exciting, yeah. even though it's been seven times. I'm imagining that that uh, that never gets old hearing that news. Not ever. And, <laughs> uh, God, I'm for sure. You know that that's the yeah you know, in the recording and in, you know. Uh, uh, that's the awards of all awards. To by chance, sometimes have the good fortune to to capture an award that you can bring home with you. Uh, and I, I don't take the the uh, being one of the, the five finalists. And that that's a feat in itself. <laughs> and I'm sure all five finalists would tell you. And I'm sure that all five finalists would say, "But I hope I win." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> It's a great, uh, it's a great group of people this year too. A good variety, and your your new album sounds so good for a live album. It would sound good if it was a studio album. It's the sound quality is well, phenomenal. You. Well, it's uh, I, I got it first off. I got to tell you that the when we went and got to Prague and they approached us with the idea to to uh, that they brought in a you know a professional recording. Uh, company and equipment would would we try to do a live what kind of caught me off guard because we really hadn't talked about that i said well you know what we're here we've got nothing to lose and <laughs> uh, it, it may that it may be that we come away with something that we we can work with and uh so i said well okay on the stipulation that we we bring the files back to the u.s with us and we do the work that we feel is necessary because it is you know, all lost in the Quicksilver CD, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and that the bigger thing is is you know the song selections and things like that. But uh, you have to a live recording is uh, is a lot of work to to try to as what we call it. We you got to make it radio friendly where that you can play it on the radio and it's not uh, because you got as you know you got the the ambience of the room you're dealing with and. Sure, and all sorts of things that you had to that you had to work with, but uh, but my dobro player at, at that time, uh, Josh Swift, uh, also uh, does a lot of engineering, he, so he worked really hard uh, and uh, trying to get stuff to where we we felt at ease with it. And I got to tell you though, when when 
when we finished it up and I listened to it and, and I, and I, I confess I smiled because it did sound good, <laughs> but the, but the last thing that, um, that would have entered my mind was that it would be nominated for a Grammy. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's saying a lot to take a live CD and, and, uh, and have it to where people like it enough. And, uh, it, it just shows me that, uh, even though I've been at this business a pretty good while, uh, I guess people are still listening to me. So that, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a great thing, man. So how do you pull together a set list with such a huge catalog of music to pick songs from? Well, uh, it, it's a combined uh, uh, approach between the, what the guys and I want to do and uh, one advantage to have, and I think there's about 40 recordings with, with of Doyle, Lawson, and Quicksilver. That's about right. Wow. So uh, that's a lot. But yeah. one advantage is that uh, we can go back and revisit some of the stuff that we may have uh, let go for a while. And and uh, so we rely on that. Uh, that keeps us from getting kind of stale. Uh, and also, we listen to what people say. If they keep asking for a particular song, you best go ahead and sit down and say, boy, let's revisit that and do it. Because obviously they want to hear it. We could, if you hear it, if you hear it from one person, uh, okay, yeah, we'll think about it. But if you keep hearing it from one crowd to the next, that song keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, those people that buy those tickets and buy those CDs are what keeps us going. So, and, it's a foolish man who doesn't listen to what the people are talking to him about. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and your, your band is kind of like a, uh, kind of like a, 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 like a farm team, I guess is what, uh, is what they say. You, 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 have, you bring in some incredible players and then you, you take them on and, and then they move on to, to different things. But you, I mean, your account, your recording sounds so tight. How do you, uh, how do you select some of these people? And, and, and then, make the recording sound as, as like it's a band that's been playing together for 20 years? Well, uh, you know, I have a, uh, my faith is very important to me and I've learned, uh, and I, I know that I've always relied on the good Lord above to any, he's anything I've ever needed in a time of stress or, or, or difficulty mm-hmm. has been provided in, 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 in his time, not necessarily we, we as humans are awfully impatient. We want, we we say, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. So, so anyway, but yeah. but that, uh, that's, uh, I have the comfort of knowing that even though it may not be according to my timetable, my my needs will be met. But and when I do, when when the guy comes along and I hire him, uh, whoever comes here, the key is I don't change for them. They change for me. Mm-hmm. They play the music I play, the style that I that I play, and I've become known for. And that's why uh, there has been kind of minute changes uh, overall, but it's only as much as I've wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also, I always take into consideration that I tell him each guy that comes in to fill the slot where somebody else is being. That's the first of all. You don't have to worry about me expecting you to be the guy that was here before, because right. you can't be. You know, you're you're made 
the way the good Lord made you. We're all different. So, but that doesn't keep you from conforming and adapting to the sound that we've got going here. So what that does, that gives him a, uh, a little comfort knowing that he's not trying to, that I'm not expecting him to be the guy before, whoever it is. Sure. That's unfair to anybody to say, you know, uh, well, that's not the way so-and-so did it. Well, that, no, it may not be, but <laughs> he's not that other guy. you know. So you got to give him a little room. And as long as they make a, a real effort to conform and adapt to what I'm doing, uh, we'll get along great. <laughs> that's great. That's perfect. What is the, what's some advice you'd give to people who are who are auditioning for bands? I mean, obviously, you've seen people whose traits they come on, they you groom them, and then they go on to some other things. What are some of the traits that you see in some of these players that make them success, successful and, and and able to do that adapting and such? Oh, I can I can go right off if they're uh, number one, they have to be willing to do that. And I and I, I said a lot of story of the character of a person, uh, and uh, uh, there's no saying you judge by the company you keep. Well, I don't want to be a bad influence on anybody, nor do I want anybody to be a bad influence on me in the music uh, that I play or the music that we call bluegrass. Sure. So I look at character, uh, but I uh, also, when somebody comes here, uh, I know right away if he is a go-getter and uh, and the ones that come, and, and uh, I can tell when they listen and they ask questions, uh, and they do their job, and then whenever uh, whenever they feel like that they need to to try their wings, I totally understand that because mm-hmm. I was there one time myself. You know, <laughs> sure, and I know how that is. And then I can tell the ones that uh, I can tell the ones that pretty much are here for a paycheck. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, and it's, that's it's, that's life, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just the way it is. Sure. Absolutely. So you've had a, a pretty remarkable career, obviously. Uh, we could spend hours going over this. And um, But what is what is the initial thing that drew you to play mandolin? Bill Monroe. I was about five years old, and we had to, had the Grand Ole Opry tuned in on Saturday night. And, uh, yeah, we lived up in, over here in East Tennessee, and, and it's about 300 miles over to Nashville. But it was clear channels even back then. Uh, WSM was a 50,000-watt station. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the weather would get in the way, and you'd have a lot of uh, static and stuff like that. And, but uh, but on a good night, well, I got to enjoy the the uh, the Opry as it was in those days, and uh, and it was a wonderful thing to to experience uh, for a kid listening to radio. And but when when Monroe came on, I don't. I guess I just became aware that. There was something about his music that was just not like all the other people that were playing, and and I don't know what it was. I mean, you know, we were listening to Radio, Roy Acuff and Ernest Tubb, and, and uh, you know, Red Foley, 
Eddie Arnold, people like that. Uh, but when Monroe came on, he just had a his music was different. I, it was more intense, I guess. And then I heard that mandolin. And <laughs> so my mother, she she told me who he was and that he played mandolin and said he had a real high voice. <laughs> and uh, but that uh, that just intrigued me and grabbed me right away and I told her then I said well that's what I want to do when I grow up oh wow and Daniel, uh, Daniel I can promise you I never wanted to do anything else other than play the music I heard when I was about five years old became aware of I heard it before then right uh, I remember the I can tell you the first bluegrass record that I can remember it being in our house yeah my, my dad brought home uh, uh, two uh, flat Scruggs records when they were recorded for Mercury So that, well, when Earl cracked down on that banjo, <laughs> you just about come out of your seat, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but that's, that was my hero. And then, of course, uh, uh, as I started getting older, about 11 years old, and my father sang in an acapella quartet down in, over in Hancock County, Tennessee. The county seat is Sneedville, Tennessee, which just happened to be the home of uh, the king, king of bluegrass, Jimmy Martin. moved over there when I was 10 because my dad was from Hancock County. He started, he'd been singing uh, uh, here in, in the, the Kingsport Tri-Cities area before that. But when he got, uh, when we moved over there, then he started singing with the quartet. They called themselves the Clinch River Quartet. I found out that one of the fellows that sang with him, his name was Willis Bird, D-Y-R-D. I found out he had a mandolin, so I asked my dad if he would see if I could borrow that because I wanted to learn to play mandolin. Well, he he asked him, and uh, uh, Willis learned me the, the mandolin, and uh, I, I know I, my career almost ended before it got started because that that night they were having they were having a revival at that little missionary Baptist church that we attended. Mm -hmm. It was on a <laughs> it was on a Saturday night. And I, and I didn't go into church because it started raining about the time I took the mandolin to the car. So I used that as an excuse to not go inside the oh. church. <laughs> well, when my dad came out, I'd already worked me out a little melody on the thing. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I could hear the, I have a little tune going and playing it with one or two fingers, you know, and, and uh, he was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's all well and good, but, 
the next time that, that it, it's time for church, you better be in there sitting down. So, <laughs> right. Uh, I, never, I never tried that anymore. But, <laughs> good, good call. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's a great story. So, but that's, that's who influenced me, you know, and, uh, and I still, to this day, uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give myself a big listen to, to Bill and the Bluegrass Boys. And, uh, so, and his, his voice and his mandolin were one. He played his mandolin with the same power and authority that he sang with. And uh, you could hear it. And uh, uh, the way he played the mandolin, he got a tone out of the mandolin that, that I've never heard anybody else get. Yeah. Yeah. And there's I, a lot I, of people try. <laughs> well, and that's good. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, hey, when I first started playing, I, I wanted to be Bill Monroe. Then I realized sure. as I got older and started, and, and I thought, well, there, there's only one. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, uh, so I, for years, I'd hear people say, "I want to find me an old Lord just like Bill. Sounds just like his." Well, here's how I found out what I'm going to tell you. Yeah, we were playing the Roy A. Cup Theater back when Opryland was still there before they had all the, the, uh, the Opry Mills now, but. Uh, Roy, they had Roy, Roy Cup Theater back over there close to the, to the Opry House. And uh, we were doing a matinee show there, uh, a bluegrass thing. And I went in, and uh, Mr. Bill was sitting on the uh, on couch playing his mandolin. Well, that old, that old uh, July 9th, 1923 lore. And I, uh, I had a fellow named John Paganoni who built mammons for me for several, a lot of years. And, uh, and they were, they were just as good as you want to have, you know? Well, I got my Paganoni out of the case and I walked over and he was playing something. I forgot it was. He just stopped. He handed me his lower and he'd hand, and I'd hand him my, my pack. And he started playing again. And that's when the light came on. Because when he played my Paganoni, he got the same tone, pretty much, right. as he got with the lower. And I started, so I started playing that old lower of his. And to to my surprise, it didn't sound like Bill's lower. It sounded like my Paganoni. So I figured it out. And I so the next time I heard somebody say, "I want to play me a mandolin that sounds just like Bill's," I looked at him. I said. There ain't one <laughs> because it, it's it's not the man it's not all the mandolin it's it's the guy behind it and the kind of the way he plays and what he gets out of one. Right, and I'm a firm believer in that. Did you um did you get to uh, play much with him? Well, over the years I did. Uh, I never did work in his band, uh, but uh, uh, sometimes I would. Uh, well, actually, when, when I was with a country gentleman. Uh, we recorded one of his songs called Lord Protect My Soul. Down life's highway, alone I've trod, I've 
bet your silver and gold won't pay the price to protect your soul. Me and Charlie Warner, Bill Yates, and we had a young man named Ricky Skaggs playing fiddle with us. He's he's done all right. <laughs> yeah, he's done pretty good for himself. I, I think I think he's got a future. Don't he's you? Definitely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, we did that gospel tune, and, and, and Mr. Bill loved loved that. You know, well, uh, you know, of course, Gags moved on to 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 bigger and better things, as we know. And uh, uh, but Bill would come out on the stage, and he'd sing the tenor part because that's he'd recorded wrote and recorded. It. Mm-hmm. With uh, with uh, Charlie Walter, Bill Yates, and myself, and I'd sing lead. Well, then it uh, got to word that sometimes I'd take, take, take a guitar and go out, and uh, we would do some of the early stuff, some of the stuff that he didn't normally do in his shows, and he liked that. He liked the fact that that one was he he got to reach back and and uh, and uh, recall some of those songs he'd recorded and and. Uh, uh, and two, it, it would it kind of push him, you know. He, uh, I know one time we were doing a song called The First Whippoorwill, and we were doing it in A, and he'd recorded it in G. But A was pretty doggone high. Yeah. Well, then he, I, I, all of a sudden, I think he looked over me and realized that I, I might be covering him up a little bit. And I'll tell you what, that big proud fellow took about a half step back, and he proceeded to to blow my hair back. <laughs> he, he put the power on me. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, uh, yeah, yeah, he looked at me as if to say, "You know, I started this music, and I'm going to finish it." Too. Oh <laughs> so my gosh! Anyway. No, that's but it was that's fun. Amazing. I enjoyed that. I really did enjoy it. Uh, uh, well, I guess the last time that I that I saw Bill was. Uh, 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 maybe in the in the fall at his festival in Bean Blossom before mm-hmm. he died the next year, and I went out and did uh, two or three songs with him. And uh, uh, so when when Bill passed, uh, I'm a pretty tough guy, but I couldn't bring myself uh, to go to the, to the funeral. I just that was you know. I sang at Charlie Walter's funeral. I sang at Jimmy Martin's funeral, but there was something when Bill died. I just got that was my he was a he was the reason I wanted to play, and I just thought, well, you know, I just thought he's going to live forever, and I, even though I knew he wasn't. But sure. uh, but I said, well, I've got my memories of the last time that I saw him. I got to pick and sing with him, so I want to hold on to that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's the way to do it. Wow, man! Thanks for sharing that. That's that's a great story too. Goodness, man! And you now you've played with so many. You you mentioned a few of them here, like the country gentleman, obviously, and and you know, the, as you call him, the king of bluegrass, Jimmy Martin. You played with Jimmy Martin. I did. Yeah. I went to work. That's my first professional job. Uh, I met Jimmy when I was fourteen years old, and, and as I said, Jimmy was from uh, over in Hancock County, and he'd come home for Christmas. Jimmy had a sister and uh, her husband that lived on the farm uh, next to ours where we lived. Well, his brother-in-law saw that I was playing, took an interest in me, and said, hey, uh, Jim's coming home for Christmas. Would you like to go over and meet him? Well, you know, I was absolutely heaven. I said, absolutely sure. Well, make a long story short, Jimmy uh, 
I was still playing mandolin then, and, and uh, he saw that I was struggling, and, and so he said, "Look, you're playing with you're playing a real with a real stiff arm. You'll never be able to play as fast as you need to play." And so he, he said, "You got to play from your wrist out to the tip of your fingers with your right hand." And he said, "I'll Bill taught me how to do this. I'm going to show it to you." And he did. And he said, uh, "When you go home." Don't worry about playing lead. Just just play tremolo. Do that for two or three weeks or whatever. And then when, when you feel good with that, go back to playing. Well, I did it. I did that. And when I went back to playing, I discovered that I could not use it. I couldn't play any other way but with my wrist. And that's how I play today. And some people have remarked that that when, when they watch me play, it looks it's very similar to Bill's. And I said, well, you know, indirectly, I guess that's where I got it, you know. But right. uh, so oddly enough, though, little did I know, at the age of 18, I'd go to work for Jimmy. I went to Nashville on the third day of February in 1963. Not as a mandolin player, but I played banjo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I learned to play banjo. One, uh, we had a, a little local group that, you know, most two of us were in high school, and a couple of them were just out of school. But we we had a little band we called the Country Cousins, and <laughs> uh, but we didn't have a all we had was a, a mandolin and two guitars. And so I said, "Guys, boys, this is not going to work." I had a first cousin named Kermit Lawson who was a, a heck of a tenor singer. He didn't know how, how I could sing, and I was afraid to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just say, Kermit hit this, and he just busted, and didn't take no effort at all. And he could he could play a little mandolin rhythm, and if it wasn't too difficult, maybe do a little turnaround. wasn't much, you know. But I said, let him do. And uh, a guy named Woodrow Johnson, he uh, he was playing guitar, but he sang bass with us. I said, well, you got to get you a bass. So we he we messed around, got a, got a hold of bass, and so it was left up to me. I said, "Well, I'm I want to learn to play banjo," and uh, I didn't know a thing about a banjo, neither did anybody else. You know? <laughs> but I, I I listened to the radio and and, uh, and watch what TV there was that had banjos on it. Back in those days, there was a fellow named Cass Walker who had a chain of grocery stores, and he had uh, he had music five days a week on TV. And he had, you know, groups like the Brewster Brothers, the Webster Brothers, Red Rector, Carl Story. I mean, everybody worked for Cass. Well, I got, I could, I could watch that because, and I watched the banjo player, Bud Brewster and Larry Mathis were both good banjo players. And so by listening and watching, I kind of taught myself and I listened to J.D. Crow on the Jimmy's records but anyway, uh, because I had my sights on going to Nashville, and I figured that I'd like, hopefully, if I could play, learn to play banjo, my chances of getting a job were much greater because I looked at my, my options, and there wasn't much demand for mandolin players where I wanted to go because Bill played mandolin. <laughs> right. Bobby Osborne. <laughs> you had Jesse McCriddle and Bobby Osborne. Ronnie Reno working with his dad and, and uh, Paul Williams, who had married Jimmy Martin's sister. And I thought, well, maybe if I learn to play banjo. So I, <laughs> I, I, so I did. And, and 
Jimmy found out about it, called me up and said, you want to come down to audition? I said, yeah. And he said, well, do you know any of my songs? I said, I know all your songs. Oh, cool. And he said, what? I said, I know all of them. And he laughed. He said, well, come on down. And so anyway, uh, third day of February in 1963, I officially became a professional musician playing banjo for Jimmy Martin. Wow. That's amazing. So when did you when did you switch back to mandolin? Not until I went to work with J.D. Crow. Uh, uh, I left Jimmy in the, in the fall of and in the fall of 1963, I believe it was. Uh, I wound up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, simply because I didn't want to stay in East Tennessee. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I figured if I was going to have to work uh, a job, I could get a go to a bigger city and, and uh, job options were better and maybe there was more music going on because East Tennessee at that time was pretty dry when it came to, to playing music. And, and uh, But anyway, I went up in Louisville and playing square dances, union jobs, and teaching, working this, that, and the other, and then, and of course, working a day job. And I had a fellow that uh, was taking banjo lessons from me and then he would go also go up to Lexington or over to Lexington, Kentucky, and he would take banjo lessons from J.D. Crow. He mentioned uh, he mentioned me in passing. Crow didn't he didn't never heard of me, and, and uh, he said, "Well, tell him to come down sometime. I'd like to meet him." Well, that went on for a pretty good while. So finally, in I don't know about the middle of '66 or so, I went went over, looked him up, and we just immediately became friends and. First thing I know, I'm fit. I'm filling in for his guitar player, and uh, uh, that went on for a good while. The guitar player came back, but we had a guy that uh, was playing mandolin, uh, who was a, a one heck of a blues harp player, but he he could play rhythm on the mandolin, a little bit of a turnaround, because he was not a picker, not a mandolin player. Well, we were tuning up. We played a place called Martin's Tavern three nights a week, and uh, he was struggling with a little break, and I said, Norton, let me have you. Let me see that. I might be able to help you out a little bit. And he and Crow, J.D., looked at each other, and, and so I took the man and played a little bit. I said, see, what do you think about that? <laughs> Crow, Crow looked at me and said, you didn't tell me you could play mandolin. I said, well, you, you didn't ask, you know, or something <laughs> like that. So Gordon said, hey, man, hold on. Whoa. We got this all wrong. You give me that guitar. You play the mandolin, so that, that's how I got back into playing the mandolin. <laughs> that's how oh, cool. And you have, I have a, um, I've had a copy. For, uh, I don't even know how many years now of you guys at the the Red Slipper Lounge. Um, oh yeah. Oh man, that, that that's a legend. <laughs> Do you have any great stories from that place? Because you, I would imagine you put a lot of hours in. Uh, no, on yeah, that I worked there. Uh, I worked there with, for uh, about twenty two months. Before I went left to go to the, uh, well, with exception of, uh, I went back to Jimmy for a little while in '69, back to Crow in '70, but uh, uh, pretty much almost two years I worked there, and uh, uh, you know that was uh, probably the first group to move what we call maybe uptown to. So back in those days, you, you primarily worked you know, clubs and bars and stuff, you know, and, mm -hmm. and did did a show whenever you could because basically everybody had 
had to have day jobs because to to uh, to offset the <laughs> the income, you know, <laughs> well, you're going to deal with the supplementary income rather. And uh, but uh, then we got uh, had a chance to go out to the uh, to the Holiday Inn, so we we started six nights a week, uh, and. Uh, then that was too much. We were trying to, we were still trying to work and working five and a half days a week and, and playing six nights a week. It began to really quickly take a real toll on our bodies. We we just physically could not keep up with it. Sure. But anyway, we dropped uh, we dropped to, to where we work Tuesday through Saturday, and we do four shows a night, and. Uh, uh, it was then I, I told JD, I said, man, you know, I'm either going to, I'm going to go for it. This music is going to, it's going to either work or I'm giving it up and, and find a job that I can just be fairly happy with if it's there. And, uh, cause I can't do both. And as, as it happened, <laughs> he was thinking the same thing. So <laughs> it, it wasn't long after I, I, I just a short while after I left it. We but we worked together uh, on a day job too. J, JD was a shipping clerk uh, in an industrial supply place, and I was his assistant. He got me on as his assistant, oh, cool. so I could move from Louisville. So we we worked day and night together, you know. And, and uh, uh, I guess that's that's why when people ask me about JD, I, I say, well, he's close as a brother because he is. Yeah. And we, we spent a lot of time together. And uh, But anyway, uh, we would have, our crowds were, well, I, to put it mild, we, we had every every uh, large manager in town was coming over and trying to figure out how we were having such big crowds. And they were basically playing to empty rooms. Right. Well, you know, it was pretty simple to me. Uh, <laughs> they loved JD's banjo playing. You know, it, I mean, he he was a he was and still is an icon in that area. Not it, of course, worldwide too. But yet, around that area, JD was he, it was there was JD and there was a, then there was everybody else <laughs> that, that, that held the banjo. You know, right, right. But uh, uh, but they on the weekends, especially. You know, usually uh, a Tuesday night was probably the weakest night, and we still had good crowds. But but man, uh, Wednesday and Thursday were full. Friday and Saturday, they would line out all the way through the at the door, waiting to try to get in. All the way out through the the lobby, down the sidewalk into the parking lot, people would be standing there waiting to get in. Oh wow! If That's somebody amazing. left. Yeah, it was it was really amazing, and uh, so it was a it was a really good thing. Uh, it allowed us to to uh, to take the music to a, a new level as far as uh, uh, benefiting the 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 music itself because you know we were always considered a, an offshoot of country music, and quite honestly, the, in those days. It, Country music people sort of looked down on us, and uh, but still, uh, uh, it, it was a step up for everybody. It helped the music overall, I think. And uh, but 
after close to two years, I, I began to get restless and, and uh, I, I felt like I was punching a clock and I hated it was just, you know, five nights a week and Sunday and, and sometimes we, we would play somewhere on the weekend, you know, I mean on the on the Sunday. Uh, uh, I think the first festival we played was was uh, the first festival they had in in Camp Springs, North Carolina, uh, and that was Labor Day. I think it was Labor Day weekend, '68 or '69, and we could only do that because it, we uh, it was a holiday. We we were off, so but uh, and uh, but uh, it was good. But I began to feel like I was just uh, uh, just tired of going in. We didn't we didn't punch the clock, but we we were very regimented. We did exactly uh, a forty minute show. We off twenty. We went back on. We didn't go on one minute after the hour. We went right on the. We were it was real regimented. Nice. And, uh, but uh, uh, then I got a call from. Well, we'd been started working festivals and so forth too at that time, and uh, got a call from. Bill Emerson, who had gone back to the country gentleman, mm-hmm. he, he said that Goodrow, uh, Jimmy Goodrow was leaving. To, he was teaming up with Eddie Adcock and uh, was going to be leaving. Would I be interested in taking the job? And I said, yeah, I would. So I met with him a week or so later in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we sang for about an hour, and, and uh, uh, it worked. And so... I spent almost eight years with them, and again, I started. I started thinking I was in my in my early to mid thirties, and that if I, I began to wonder what it would be like to go in from the ground up and not have to, uh, you know, adapt and conform to what was already there, which is what you're supposed to do. I, I didn't have a problem doing that, but sure, sure. Yet I wanted to see. I had things, and I wanted to see if it would work. With me, yeah. you know, and uh, I, of course, I was a, I was a partner with the gentleman, and uh, and and that's a good thing. But when you have a partnership, sometimes uh, you bring things to the table, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Uh, and that 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 losing part bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, uh, so I decided to break away and uh, and see if I could make it work. And forty, I'm still be forty one years later. I'm, wow. I'm still still see see if it works. <laughs> Yeah, for 41 years, seven Grammy nominations, a Bluegrass yeah. Hall of Fame membership. Uh, you played the Opry. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, I think it worked. R- worked pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very blessed. Very, very fortunate. Sure. I'd love to ask you, because, um, you know, on some of those, the, the Red Slipper Lounge CDs, especially, like, when I hear 
different covers of whatever songs. I think I hold a lot of them uh, to the versions that you guys did, you know, like Little Girl of Mine from Tennessee and You Are a Flower. The recordings are so great. And what's some advice you would give people when approaching some of these tunes, learning them maybe for the first time or going to a jam and hearing them and, and, and approaching them? Well, uh, you know, if you... Uh, let me first say that, that you know, the, the, the bluegrass, the music, the pickers today uh, are just absolutely phenomenal at their ability to, to, to play music and play their instrument. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but I would, I would, I would encourage people that want to play bluegrass, even though they may, may, may not ever do or want to play the, the real traditional style. And that's okay. But I would encourage anybody, to, to what I call it, I, I call it uh, starting school in the first grade rather than, than the freshman in high school. That is, even though you may not ever play it, go back and listen to the pioneers that, that, that set the stage for what we were able to do. And, uh, and I, you know, I came along at a time when, when uh, uh, traditional music was still, still, pretty much it, you know, and, uh, but again, uh, JD and I, and the thing I like about the gentleman, we always like to step a little wider of the mark, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But yet, uh, but yet I grew up with the first generation people that, that, that set the blueprint for what we play. So it was probably a little easier for me to do what I just said I would encourage the young people to do. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and the case in point <clears throat> is uh, in, I believe it was the 1980s, uh, I got a call from Tony Rice. He wanted to do a, a straight down the, the middle traditional bluegrass recording. And he said, I just talked to J.D., he's on board, and, and uh, man, I'd like, I'd like for you to play Mammon with be on it too and I said oh sure you know well in the course of the conversation he mentioned Bobby Hicks Bobby Hicks had been playing he actually he fiddled on uh, my first album uh, one of the first two albums I did as Doyle Austin the Quicksilver and he just had gone to work uh, had been working in the Ricky Skaggs country band too long but he said you think he'd be interested I said here's his number I bet you he will be so anyway we did that that one album called the Grass Album. We didn't have a name because we weren't a band, so some way or another we wound up as the Bluegrass Album Band. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, uh, so here is we only intended to do one because we wanted to, to show our love and respect and, and uh, for the the people that made it possible for us to do it. And uh, what surprised us was how the young pickers got a hold of it 
And a lot of them thought that we had written a lot of stuff, and you know, they'd never heard it. And everybody, all the guys in the band, we, we you know, I know JD and, and Tony and myself, and would say, "Hey, go listen to the original stuff. Listen to that. That's where it started. Listen to that." And uh, now, I'm very proud of those recordings. We weren't trying to to imitate or emulate. We were just trying to. I mean, we did songs, but we did them, uh, you know, that's, that's the way we did them. Well, I didn't try, nobody tried to be a carbon copy of what they had done because, you know, uh, I always said you you can't improve on perfect. In those early recordings, they were uh, what I call, they were rough uh, in all the right places. Absolutely. I love it. When anybody and, ever says some of that stuff, whenever anybody... It you know accuses some of those players as ah it's so sloppy. I'm like oh, you're just listening to it wrong. I said you have to listen to it with your heart as well as your head. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And those bluegrass album bands, those those albums are so good. And a lot of the players, a lot of the young players actually that I've interviewed on here, um, list the list those albums and and you know and going back as some of their really influential albums. But they come up yes. a lot, man. They're still they're still influencing people. It's so great. Well, I, and I'm very proud of, but I, 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 I believe in giving uh, uh, just dues to where it, where it should be, and and uh, uh, our intent all along uh, was to to pay tribute and and uh, homage to, uh, to to the pioneers, and uh, and in doing so, uh, we probably did introduce. Uh, uh, the pioneers of that music to a lot of people that had, had never taken the time to go listen to it. Absolutely. This is the thing that I just interviewed Casey Campbell um, yeah. a few weeks ago. He's a great guy. And, and one of the things that we talked about is the fact like back then when people would buy like the bluegrass album band album, they would get a physical copy of something. They didn't have access to everything and they would sit and listen to it and they would read liner notes and they would see who wrote songs and they would go back right. and discover Oh, it was Bill Monroe. I see this name Monroe on here a lot. You know, if that was, you know, if maybe they oh, were yes. never familiar with Monroe, they go back and do that. And a lot of that seems to really have changed a lot now. It's, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, because now everything's online. Yeah, I, 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 that's, uh, I think that's in some ways detrimental to the music. Uh, I wish they would, because uh, it's all, we live in such a, a hurried up world now. Everybody's in a hurry and they want things there uh, and right now. And so, and, and then all they got to do is pull up iTunes and bam, they download it and they're done with it. Well, then they don't get a chance to know that you know, uh, this guy, whoever it might be, not only, not only did he write uh, Windy City, but he wrote the, uh, Julianne, or he wrote the Big Spike Hammer, and people things like that. I'm speaking of got the late Pete Goble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, people people that see that these days, they won't know that. Right. And uh, you know, uh, it all starts. It all starts with a song. If you don't have a, if you don't have anything to play to, then what have you got? So the, <laughs> exactly. I think the I think the writer the writer the the, the people that write songs are. Uh, are so overlooked uh, for the input and the impact they have on the music. 
and I, I wish there was some way to to to, uh, to rectify that. And, and, and but in, in today's world, it's it's a it's a fast paced, hurried up. And me, I'm, I'm like you. I looked for it. I get those albums, and I would look and I would look, read the credits, and I would look and and. Uh, uh, I was thrilled. I tried to, by chance, they, that they had who the musicians were. That was even better. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the other thing, too, I think you lose with this digital age is you could go through and it, it, it would be great if somebody went through today and downloaded every the Bluegrass album band. I mean, that'd be awesome. Please do go to iTunes and get it. But then the other thing is, is you don't fall in love with like that one album. You know, you'd get one album and that's what you had for however long yeah. it was until, you know, you had a chance to really listen to something a lot and have it sink in as opposed to be like, oh, next track, next track, next track, two albums later in 10 minutes, you know? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, tell about that album. I, I, when, when I turned 18, when school was out in, in, uh, in 1962, I went to, uh, from, uh, I went to Morristown, Tennessee, and I took a job in a, a furniture factory. And I only intended it first because I didn't I didn't graduate I didn't graduated yet I should have but I got a year behind but, uh, but I had so many other things on my mind I was wanting to do and play music was most of it but anyway <laughs> uh, but my first paycheck I went down to the local uh, record store and I bought my first record was Mr Bluegrass by Bill Monroe. The next week, I went down and I bought Country Music Time by Jimmy Martin and the Sunny Mountain Boys. And do you know I still have those two albums today? Oh, do you really? I do. That's great. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and I paid $3.98 a piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. <laughs> Oh, that's it. So let's, um, let's get to, uh, if I know where you're driving here, so I want to try to get to a couple other things here while you're, while you're going before you get there. But uh, let's talk a little bit about gear. What is your main mandolin that you're using currently? Well, right now, I'm, I'm, as of late, or well, for the last little while, uh, I have several uh, that I've acquired over the years, but I'm playing the, uh, the Lawson model Gibson. That awesome. That was going to be my next question. So yeah, let's talk, let's go ahead and let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I, well, I uh, uh, when the when late Charlie Darrington was was really cranking up the uh, the uh, the Gibson mandolin world and, and, and banjo, but Charlie was a mandolin player, so he was he was really gung ho and in bringing back the the statue that Gibson had once had when it came to uh, quality mandolins, and they went through a time that that admitted they'll tell you too if you would ask them. Of course, not prevalent, maybe not now because. Of, but there was a time when when Gibson really let their production <clears throat> get real slack in the quality. And uh, and I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have took, I wouldn't have cared one home for him giving it to me. Well, uh, they began to ask me for I don't know how many years it's there, you know. Let's do a let's do an artist model, and I said I tell you what when you, when you build one that 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 I'd actually play then we'll talk. <laughs> right now, if you gave me one I wouldn't play it or would I take it home? Well then, then Charlie steps in and 
talks come back again. And uh, I guess it started with uh, when when uh, Greg Rich and, and uh, Jim Triggs were working for Gibson. We kind of talked about it then. And I could see Jim and, and Greg tr- uh, working towards turning it around as well, you know. And uh, But uh, then, then Charlie came in. And so I said, okay, well, let's talk. And we sat down and talked about it. And I said, well, first thing, there's, there's, what is the point in building a, a mandolin and putting my name on it and it looking like everything else that you got? <laughs> so, so I said, here's what I want. And so I had him to, uh, had him to, uh, uh, to bind the F holes. Yeah, I love that look. And uh, then, uh, uh, Danny Roberts was working there at that time with great guy, fine man and player with the graphics. And he and I, I told us that the young kids, they don't like that traditional fingerboard. Let's shorten it because if you don't, all you'll hear when there's playing is a tap, tap, tap <laughs> hitting the fingerboard. Yeah. So uh, he and I kind of worked together on redesigning the, uh, the fingerboard. We shortened it and and uh, then we did a new floral pattern for the inlay. Of, and uh, uh, basically, that was as far as the cosmetics, that was about all the changes I wanted in that respect. And, but I said, okay, Charlie, here's the deal. I don't want you to build one that sounds great and I play it. Everything that comes out of there with my name on it, I want it to sound great. And, I, and I, of all that I've played, and people have brought them to me that bought them. I have never heard a bad sound of one, so oh, I'm very great. proud of that. Absolutely. I, I, I said, you know, I don't want you know, it would be I don't want my name on something that's that's trash. <laughs> right. And uh, so they they were good at you know they were they were good at the word. They they did what I asked them to do. Yeah, they're so, beautiful uh, looking too. Just a binding. I'm very proud of them. Oh, that. they're yeah. they're gorgeous. And what year yeah, was that uh, that they uh, that they initially came up with that? I believe it was uh, 2003, I think. Okay, cool. It's been a while, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's been a while. And, of course, the Gibson's undergone some changes in recent times. I think they're trying to get restructured, get things back. To, and uh, I hear there's, they're expressing interest in maybe beefing up the acoustic division a little bit more, you know. That'd be great, they yeah. Me, they told me to quit ban- building banjos and I've always said, you know, bluegrass and Gibson go hand in hand. Absolutely. I mean, they, 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 you know, uh, and uh, and of course you got you got to throw in the, the the Martin guitar as well. Oh, know? for so sure. But <laughs> you know, there there are a lot of great luthiers, not only building banjos but mandolins and guitars, and and so. Uh, if it's did, I guess if, if one thing is positive about all that, it, it made it made the big boys on the block uh, take notice that yeah, hey, we don't tighten tight enough here. They're gonna eat our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You can go to a festival and play some incredible mandolins. Oh, you know, yes, it's, absolutely. Well, it's I, amazing. Because uh, I, you know, Gibson, Gibson's my is my. Man. That's my main axe right now. But uh, I mentioned John Paganoni a while ago. I, I uh, he built for me for 
from uh, 1973, I played uh, through uh, 2003. That was 30 years. Wow. And and uh, I still have three of the, the Paganonis. Uh, and uh, there's no better builder than that I know of. Of course, you know, you got Steve Gilchrist, who's a, a legend. And, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, talk about the Prague recording, the, the Czech Republic, uh, Rasta Chapek. Uh, he and his wife promoted the shows, and well, he's also a builder. Right, right. And and uh, uh, and I have one of his F5s, and uh, and recently, uh, last year, I uh, got one of the little A models. And uh, oddly enough, uh, when we did the concert over there, rather than take a mandolin, uh, I I just asked if I could play one of his. And that would be something I always worry when I have to. I mean, even though I carry them on board with me, I just. But anyway, uh, so I actually played a, a Chopek mandolin on the recording. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It sounds great. Well, it, it sold right after that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I bet it somebody did. bought that one quick. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Do you um do you like a uh, particular mics when you when you perform live? Uh, I'm using right now, uh, let me think. I think I'm using a Peluso. Oh, yeah, those are great. Yeah, uh, I know I, I've switched around so much, but uh, uh, it seems to be right now it's worked better than anything I've had. I, I played a, a I used a Norman. I can't remember what it was now for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've used several, uh, and I used a, I used a, a DPA for a, for a good while, and uh, it worked good uh, with a with a. I just I had a little hot dot, and I would mount it to the the slot. I'd stick that little mic in that slot right at, right at the F hole. And, that way I can move around and walk around. I I tend to ramp on around on stage sometimes. The guys fuss because they, they couldn't hear my rhythm. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I've gone back. I've gone back to, uh, I, I guess I'm old school. I, I just, I'm so, uh, I'm a creature of habit. I like, I've done it so long that way. And I mean, I, I change when I have to, but I, I kind of like the, the way I've worked for so long. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. How about strings and picks? Do you have anything in particular you use that you that you've been using for a while? Yeah, I, I I've used a blue chip pick for several years now. Uh, they're the they're just they're the best pick I've ever had. Uh, the big the good thing is uh, they're so durable. I mean, you get you get a good one unless you lose it. It's really hard to wear out. Yeah. And, uh, what size? What, what style do you use for the blue chips? I use a little, like a kind of a teardrop. Oh, okay, cool. With and uh, but I use it either it's a forty-five or a fifty, mm-hmm. depending on which. If I have people, some uh, sometimes uh, a certain moment you're playing calls for a little heavier pick. Some of them calls for a little lighter. Uh, for me, I don't like. Some guys use those really, really, really heavy picks. Yeah, I. And that's okay for them, I guess, but I don't like the pick noise that you get from them. They, 
the, the thick pick produces a lot of feathering pick noise that I hear. And uh, a little flexibility takes some of that out. And the strength, deer Dario, I've used those deer Dario for years and years and years. Uh, and uh, I use a medium, a medium gauge, the, I think it's J74. And sometimes, sometimes I'll, uh, sometimes I put a, a set of J75s on just to go a little heavier on the. Uh, I, I do. Yeah, I like a, I like a sixteen thousand gauge on the second. Although I can use the fifteen, gotcha. But I've played so long that I've, uh, sometimes I, I can't get out of the habit of sometimes playing too hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I hear you. <laughs> Every gig I play, I'm like, just play nice. I try to warm up light. I try to practice light, and the next thing I know, I'm digging in like a goofball. <laughs> it just, it just doesn't work. Does it? <laughs> no, no. One of these days, man. One of these days. <laughs> Um, if you were to pick up your mandolin and play a fiddle song right now, what fiddle song is one that you love playing? Well, lots of times if I if I'm just losing up, I'll play uh, Rutland's Reel, which mm-hmm. is pretty difficult. Pretty difficult tune to play. Uh, sometimes, just in, for exercise, warming up, I, I may play uh, uh, just to loosen my hand up first. And Gray Eagle or, or Little Sally Good. I, it all. Sometimes, uh, Sally Ham. It all depends on how I'm feeling. But sure. uh, uh, but once I get loosened up, I, I, I might practice with uh, uh, Rutland's Reel, which is a, a great fiddle tune that that's makes a good mandolin tune if you can learn to play it right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do, you know, I, I ride a lot of tunes. I've, yeah. I've yeah. been riding tunes. I, I just can't ever seem to sit down and, and get them on record. I, uh, but I, I, I write stuff on, you know, all the time. And then I, sometimes I forget them and have to go back and figure out what it was I did, you know? So. Yeah. What's a couple of your, uh, if you want to do recommend somebody who's listening to this podcast, if for, for some reason, they are not familiar with Doyle Lawson, which I'd be I'd be stunned. But if you had to pick a couple songs from your uh, from your Quick Silver albums, what are some that really you think um, define you? Well, you can go back to the very first album, which you know uh, we did a tune called Yellow River, and uh, it's a it's a scorcher. my pace. I've got my papers, I've got my pay. So pack my bags and I'll be on my way to Yellow River. Put my gun down, the war is won. You can feel my glass all the time has come. But uh, uh, it, had, it has a mandolin intro and uh, uh, people always like that break. Uh, they always like uh, even though we don't do it a whole lot anymore, but 
that's one of the tunes that's that stand out. Uh, uh, Julianne's another one that people enjoyed. I did I did uh, also I did a tune that were really worth the day in. I did a tune on the uh, Drive Time CD uh, called the Greenbrier Hop, and I I I, I used a mandola and I I I did a special tuning on it, and it sounds like two mandolins playing all the time. Pretty neat tunes. I, I would, I, I just had, I was using the mandola for something else that we were recording, and uh, uh, on the way to the studio, uh, we were recording up just out of Nashville. And of course, I had about a five-hour drive or three-hour, whatever. And I, uh, I got that mandola out and started figuring. I thought, well, let's see what this. I kept fooling. Finally, I came up with that. Before I got to the studio, I'd written that tune, and I said, well, I want to record this. And so, uh, actually, I played mandolin and banjo on, on that tune because oh, wow. I, the, the banjo player I had w- w- was not there, and I needed to try to get it done. <laughs> so, uh, I just picked up the banjo and played the banjo. Wow. And that's ra- that's rare that I do things like that, but but I did. Yeah, and nice nice to be able to. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just a couple quick more questions here for you, Doyle. Um, is obviously, uh, if 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 anybody could pick the brain of somebody, yours is a great one to pick here for for tips. And if you had ten minutes a day to work on something that would help somebody become a better player, what would you recommend working on? I would work. Probably at uh, making sure that the standard I've set for my playing had not lessened it at all. Mm-hmm. Making sure my chops were still up. I, I remember hearing uh, Chet Atkins in an interview. Chet Atkins is known as one of the great guitar players of our time. Absolutely. Uh, and I heard him. I was talking to him, and he said, "Well, the day, the, the day that I wake up." And tell myself that there's not anything else that I can learn on guitar is the day that I put it in the case and never open it up again. <laughs> right. Well, I'm I'm much the same way. When I, when I mentioned writing, uh, I do that because uh, uh, it it keeps my it keeps my mind into developing my my work, and uh, and during that. 
I'll do things. I write things that I don't, and I I do I do mix it. I don't do maybe any other time. Mm-hmm. And so that that's for me. And so I when I when I pick up my man and and uh, and I used to, uh, there was a time I, I probably don't practice as much as I did then. But I don't have as much time to do that as I did then. But I would always there was always. Uh, Using at least three hours every day, whether I was on the road or off the road, that I practiced and I played every. Well, uh, today I would I would I would encourage people to to de- make sure that what they've developed doesn't get away from them, and that uh, you try to improve on what what you are. Uh, the goal is to always strive to be the best that you can be. And as good as you are, want to be better. Yeah, absolutely. Those good words. That's, and that's a great theme that keeps coming back on a lot of these podcasts. Oil is a lot of guys like yourself, guys and gals, I should say that they just keep they keep on working. There's always something to be better at. And that's what makes that's what makes you a legend, man. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this, man. And um, I do want to say, I, I do always ask before these podcasts start the drinking question. Um, and you had a great quote. Uh, Doyle, Doyle doesn't drink any longer. He stopped in 84, 85. But he told me, uh, do you want to <laughs> say that? The quote you told me, which is yeah. classic. Well, when you asked me about it, I was like, well, when Claire... The publishers called me. I said, "Well, that's kind of an odd name for a podcast, <laughs> but yeah, I'll do it." But I laughed at her. I said, "You know, uh, I stopped drinking beer in 1985," and I said, "When I did that, Anheuser Busch laid off the whole third shift." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but I did. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, when when something begins to. Uh, want to take control of you rather than you control it and then you need to make a change and i did absolutely well doyle thank you for all you've done for for the mandolin thank you for taking the time to do this best of luck with the grammy nomination next week this will air by the way i'll have this on the air next week after the grammy podcast so who knows i might be saying i might be anointing uh, announcing you as grammy winning well i'll be okay with that too <laughs> we'll see what happens uh, absolutely at, uh, i've never done it for the awards but it would be awfully nice to to bring one home. Sure. Awesome, buddy. Well, Doyle, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's been a joy talking with you, too. Oh, thank you. An absolute legend, Doyle Lawson. And again, Michael Cleveland won. Congratulations to Michael Cleveland. And next week, Andrew Marlin from Mandolin Orange is our guest. So, cheers, everybody. Have a wonderful week.